Hey, y'all figured I would start out this podcast giving you a little bit of an update about what's been going on around here with the Lawn Care Nut, Yard Mastery, and all of that kind of stuff. And I wanted to start by saying if you haven't been to the Lawn Care Nut channel in a while and you haven't seen the video we put out two weeks ago, um, it's a video that is is unprecedented in, in my career on, on YouTube, but I don't think it's ever happened in the lawn care community, anything like that. Um, it was inspired, that type of video and that style of video was inspired by me watching Mr. Beast a lot, um, but also inspired by me watching, strangely enough, a channel called Steve Will Do It, um, who uh, is somebody that gives a lot and uses this platform to give back. And I thought, you know, if these guys are doing that, these young fellas, maybe I should see how we can do that in our community, how I can use my platform, although it's a lot smaller than theirs. They have millions of subscribers, obviously. I'm not there, but within our community, I have a platform. And I'm like, what can I do to use that platform to help out? And this video was the biggest of those to date. We've done a couple already philanthropy type videos, but in this one, we uh, went to Northwest Indiana. I wanted to do it there. And uh, the first thing I did was talk to Ego. I wanted them to sponsor it, which they did. And I asked them for quite a bit of money too. And then Yard Mastery, we put in some money as well as obviously we did all the production and paid for all of that. And we went to Northwest Indiana and we found a homeowner in need. And she was a single mom and she told her story, which is much greater than that. And she's overcome a lot of things in her life, but she happened to be in need at a time when we were there and we were able to be a blessing to her. So if you haven't seen that video, go watch it. The first half is some terrible lawn tips and the second half is all the philanthropy part. Um, in the future, I may format those videos differently, but the the result was was positive for being the first of these large ones. I sure did learn a lot. I can tell you, you want to talk about uh, some stress. I'm, I'm a nighttime uh, tooth grinder, bruxism or TMJ. I don't know what they call it, but I just grind all night, like bad. And so this video caused a lot more of that and uh, just made, not, not in a bad way. It's just I wanted it to be right. I wanted, it was a lot riding on it. And um, I knew that if we could get it to go off right and, and do the right thing with it, we can do more. That's the whole thing, right? So that caused some stress, but it was good. I learned a lot. I definitely took on way too much trying to do it the way we did, but the next one will be smoother and um, it will be bigger. So that will be coming up. But if you haven't seen the one that's there, go check that out. The next one, uh, we're in the planning stages already. So you'll see that. It'll be a while. These take a while, these production style videos that we shoot out of town like this. So Make sure you check that out. Another thing I wanted to bring up real quick is I was actually embroiled in some controversy last week with a music reviewer on YouTube called Anthony Fantano. And I was actually going to do, this is all in good fun. Let me just say this up front um, and you'll find out why I'm saying this in a minute. This, it was all in good fun. He attacked me in good fun. And I say in good fun, he did it in YouTuber good shout out fun. Um, but I'm just going to tell you that what, what, what happened here, uh, I, wanna, I guess I want to tell you the whole story because it's kind of an interesting roundabout way that I can talk to you um, about some other things. So you might even be seeing the shirt I'm wearing says loaf. So you're going to find out that I'm somebody that is um, big time into the community of YouTube and I'm an old school YouTuber. I mean, my first video was in uh, 2009, I believe, 2010. And uh, so that's how long I've been creating content on YouTube and Back in old school YouTube, it was a community as well as a creator's platform, uh, uh, YouTube itself was. And I still believe in that. And when I say that, I believe in supporting other creators. And so you'll find me commenting a lot on videos all around YouTube. I know that not everybody's like that, but I am. And I actually try to support those 
those other creators in whatever niche they're in. Um, sometimes I, I leave troll type comments, but I'm always careful to try to be funny about them. Um, what you might call chat posting or scat posting. I'm good at that. Um, I'll leave funny comments, uh, but usually it's just supportive stuff. But what I'm trying to say is, is I am a part of the community at you of YouTube at large and pretty much every YouTube channel that I watch, I participate in that community in the comments section. And with that, it, it happens often. There will be people listening right now that you will, you've done this to me before where somebody will see me commenting on some other video that they would never expect me to watch. And they'll say, oh, Al, cool to see you here, man. I would have never expected to see you on this channel. Well, I kind of like that. I'm like, yeah, because I'm a part of the community on YouTube. I like to be around and discover things. Now, the other thing is, is I like to watch up and coming YouTubers. I also like to watch YouTubers that are, are uh, watched by different age groups and demographics than me. Featuring Loaf here. Loaf is an up-and-coming um, prankster, jokester that I really like to watch. And I enjoy his content. It makes me laugh. I, I think he might be 21 or 22 years old. So he's not in my audience. And his audience is not my audience. But I like to see what they're doing. I like to see what they respond to. I like to see um, how they talk and how they interact and what their mannerisms are. And you can see a lot of that in YouTube comments and also by watching these guys. Uh, I like to understand that because that's my version of skating to where the puck is going. In other words, those folks in that loaf universe right now are not my customers, but they will be in seven to 10 years, right? And so if I understand what's influencing them now, seven to 10 years from now, when they buy a house and they are now in my audience, I will already appeal to them because I've absorbed their culture. And I, I mean, that's internet culture in the way it works. And with that, this brings me to the story of how I got called out by... Anthony Fantano, who is a, an elder millennial who reviews music. Um, I don't watch his channel. I do now. I'm subscribed and watch his videos and enjoy them. Um, but before that, he found me on Channel 5 News. Now, Channel 5 News is a guy named Andrew Callahan. He's a big-time YouTuber, and he's been around for a long time. I would call him a guy that explores culture. He just goes and exposes culture and does content about different culture in our country. I would say he goes to festivals, he'll go to rallies, he'll go to things like that, right? And and he'll just talk to people. And it's really good. And I like watching that because I learn about things that I didn't know existed. Um, he, Andrew Callahan, Channel 5 News, actually did a video a couple weeks ago, and it was on the Chicago Rap Festival. Well, that appeals to me because I used to live over by Chicago on the south side. Well, I live in northwest Indiana, but I spray lawns on the south side of Chicago over by mostly, you know, down like Harvey Markham, South Island, over by there, Hazelcrest, you know, that part of the south suburbs, Country Club Hills, maybe. I mean, I mean, even down in the Park Forest, right? You want to keep going south? You, you want to go over to Chicago uh, Heights over there? You want to go to Ford Heights? I mean, you want to go to Crete? Right, Those are all those uh, south suburbs, and anybody that's from there knows all those south suburbs. Of course, I worked on lawns up and through the south side of Chicago as well. So, you know, just a great area that I like to stay in touch with and understand what's going on there. To that end, I watched this video, and in the video, he's talking about the Chicago rap scene, and he's talking about TikTok rappers, and I got exposed to some new music, which was kind of interesting. And in that video, Anthony Fantano, who is a music reviewer, he has his own channel called Fantano, he was brought on as a subject matter expert, and in that video, he rode in on a zero turn. I was being funny, like I told you I do, and on the Channel 5 video, I said, clearly, this is the first time Anthony has ever driven a zero turn, smiley face. So it came off, They, you could read that comment and know that I was being funny, especially because of the smiley face emoji. 
Well, Anthony Fantano saw that comment on this Channel 5 video, which probably has like a million views now, 6,000 comments. He picks that one comment out and he does a video on me and he attacks me in all in good fun. And so I'll link it. If you're watching here on YouTube, I'll link it in the description. His, his video is masterful. He makes fun of the way I spell my name, you know, all these things. But then in the end, you can tell what he's really trying to be is he's trying to exercise his dad mojo because <laughs> he's like 34, 35 years old. And he's trying to feel like, you know, sitting on that mower he's trying to get some of that dad stuff going on, right? Which is why I called him out, which is, it's just fun. So here's the thing. I actually was going to make a full rebuttal video. I mean, I'm pretty funny. If I'm going to be honest with you guys, I can shit post back at somebody really, really good. Um, I can react and, and, and come back at somebody and have a good time with it and do really, really well. And I was going to do that on the main channel and rebuttal him uh, and react to his video and I decided against it ultimately. And the reason I did that is because on my main channel, I know I'm talking about it here, but this is podcast formats different. I have a lot of time to flesh this topic out as you see I'm doing. But in my normal channel, I would have had to come back, bing, bang, boom, I got embroiled in controversy, do, do, do. And the way the algorithm works, you have to keep, keep people uh, watching the video. So I wouldn't be able to say up front, hey, this is all a joke. You guys don't get offended. Me and Anthony are both just having fun here. I wouldn't be able to do that, right? I'd have to keep the suspense going in the middle that there's some big controversy that I'm embroiled in and that I'm reacting to somebody who attacked me and I'd have to keep that going and then eventually turn it funny as the video ended, which is what Anthony did. Um, even though I could pick up on Anthony from the very beginning that he was being funny in his. All I'm trying to say is to to boil this down is my audience would not understand that coming from me. They wouldn't get that humor. Number one is because a lot of folks, and not just in my audience, everywhere these days are just headline readers. So if I had a title on my video, I got embroiled in controversy, or I tried to stay out of this controversy, or I, I had to hit back now, or whatever kind of title you would have for this video, a majority of people would only read that. And I guarantee you, they'd go right down in the comments and go, we thought you were above this. You shouldn't be doing this. And they don't even really watch the video. The reason I know that is I've done similar things, not that direct before, but it's happened in a similar way. And that's not, I didn't create the internet. I didn't create the way people react on the internet. I didn't make people into headline readers these days, but that's what they are. And I am too, I'm guilty of it too. So that was number one. Number two, people that even did get into the video, I can tell you that a lot of folks in my audience wouldn't get the humor, even if I was out and out blatant about it. Number one is because I'm a good actor. <laughs> but number two, they wouldn't get the humor because they're not used to that type of humor from me. When I tell dad jokes, people laugh, right? They get it. When I say, you know, that wedding agent is is one of the classes that I took in college, right? Certified wedding agent. You know, in a, in a, people get that, right? That was the worst dad joke ever. If I say deep and infrequent, you know, watering is is reminding me of my first marriage. People understand those jokes. But if I'm doing a joke where I'm I'm actually... Um, directing my vitriol at someone, even though it, there's it's it's laced in humor, people wouldn't get it. And you guys know this all the time. There are comedians getting called out all the time that people don't get their humor, and they're actually comedians for a living, and people still don't get their humor. So me not being that, if I came out in that way, it would just be a bad look. And and to say it in a way that's super crass but super true, it'd be off brand for me, and I have to be careful about that. So. If you're a Fantano fan or Anthony Fantano, if you'd happen to see this, I doubt you will, but I want to say I'm. it's awesome that he shouted me out. I feel super honored. The dude has 1.5 million subs, and I would love to do, I would have loved to gone back and forth with him. It would have been a lot of fun, but as I just mentioned, I can't. So hopefully there'll be some way I can repay him. I am going to send him a handwritten letter because uh, no one does that anymore, so I'm going to send him a handwritten letter and actually invite him to collab 
Uh, if you watch his video, you could actually say he's sh he's he's crying out for help, which was part of what I was going to rebuttal. I'm like, buddy, if you need me to come take care of your lawn, you know, because because you're you know things have just gotten away from you, just just ask. You don't have to make a whole video. That was part of my rebuttal. The best rebuttal I had for him though was he, and again, my my video would have been much more quippy, but uh, one rebuttal I had for him is he keeps saying that he drives his zero turn or he, he keeps saying he rides his zero turn, rides, rides, rides. And so I said to him, but, and I called out all those times out where it's ride, ride, ridden, ridden my zero turn, right? And I called it out and I said, let me just explain something to you. This is why you're off. You don't ride a zero turn. You drive it. And by the way, that's the best advice I can give you in your personal life as well, especially with the ladies. So that was like one of my little jokes I was throwing out there. And, and who knows, you know, I don't know if how that would have hit. I think it's pretty funny, um, but I, I'm I'm saying it here because you guys on the podcast, you'll get it. You, I've been able to preface this now. So if that was an offensive comment, you're like, okay, well, you f good thing you didn't post that. You failed. But anyway, the long and the short of it is that's kind of how things work on YouTube. Sometimes you get opportunities, which I full well see this was an opportunity to do a huge collab with a very big YouTuber who I've come to like his content now. Um, I, uh, music is different to me. I'll talk about that a little bit. You guys know I love '80s music. I play a lot of '80s kind of synthwave stuff on here, um, which is uh, which is not actual '80s music, but it's like licensed and it sounds like that, and uh, it's cool. And even today, there's music that I would say sounds like '80s music, like Tame Impala type stuff, or um, I don't know who else. The Naked and the Famous. Some, a lot of that stuff kind of has an '80s vibe to M80. Is that is that the band? M80, M86. No, that's something you blow up. Anyways, you guys know what kind of music I'm talking about. And I like 80s music, but 80s uh, music in general is really different to me. And I want you to think about that because I grew up in a different era. So right now, you guys, you could, you know, you know the lyrics to every song that you hear if you want. It's literally right on your phone. While you're listening, you can tab over and read the lyrics. Well, that's a recent phenomenon. Before the internet, Think about this. The only way you could truly verify the lyrics of a song or understand them was if you had the actual album or I mostly grew up in the cassette tape era. Um, records were popular when I was very, very young, but cassette tapes, I don't know what year they came along. I was born in 73 and my music memory um, started, I would say, at five or six or seven years old. And those were cassette tapes which was even harder to read, but you'd have this long fold out uh, on the inside of your jacket of your cassette tape and you'd fold it out and in there would be every song and there'd be all the lyrics and they'd be in cool fonts and sometimes there'd be really cool artwork in there and man, it was awesome. However, I grew up in a household where um, we weren't super religious, but more than what most of you would consider these days. And so the only music really in our household was like gospel quartets. And um, so my parents didn't buy me uh, music. I had to get music for free on, on Q105, which is still in Tampa Bay, an 80s station today. Um, I listened to the radio, which was fine. Music was free. I, I got exposed to all the popular 80s music. However, I didn't actually know the lyrics. So if you ever sit with me and hear me sing an 80s song, I will say every word wrong and people call me out. He didn't say that. He said this. He wasn't talking about this. He was talking about that. Oh, really? Right in the middle. I got to get better at this. Such an amateur. <laughs> but people call me out all the time because I think certain words are, I should probably start doing that. Like every time I say, I should probably come up with a few songs that I can tell you for sure that I got the wrong word, you know? <laughs> anyway, I, uh, because of that though, because I didn't, oh, the other thing was 
not only did my parents not buy me albums, we couldn't really afford them. We didn't grow up super rich. So I didn't really buy albums until I had my own job, which was after the age of 16. So prior to that, and I still didn't have a lot of money at $3.80 an hour and albums were $9.99 was a good price at, um, what was the name of the place? Castle something? Camelot. Camelot Music <laughs> in the mall. You could get a tape for $9.99 if you were lucky, um, an older one. But, uh, you know, when you make three eighty an hour, I mean, do the math. After taxes, you're working four hours to buy one tape. I just listen to the radio again. Uh, so that also made me not appreciate deep tracks. Uh, I didn't know lyrics. I couldn't. Man, it just, it's just different the way music is nowadays. I had another point to make, and I lost it because the stupid phone went off. But I think I'm getting across this. Music to me is more about a feeling and it's also more about where I heard the music, my surroundings, who I was with. Those are the things that will bring up emotion in me, not the lyrics. Nowadays, when I look at people commenting on, and I've seen this in, in some of Anthony's videos or in videos that he links to, people will say that so-and-so's lyrics got me through a tough time. I see that a lot nowadays. I don't necessarily know if that was something that us 80s kids experienced. Maybe kids that were audiophiles that were really into music or their parents were really into music, I would say yes, because I know they would spend hours reading the inside of these jackets. Um, I'd, I'd go to friends' houses, and if they had a lot of tapes, I would open them up and read them and look at them. I was just always so curious. It was so cool to read that. Um, I don't know. So I look at music so differently. So I, I guess what I'm getting at is here at the end of the day is watching Anthony's channel, being he's younger, it's interesting to see how he reacts to music and how it affects him and how the artists, how he connects with the artists. You know, I'm, I'm not really connected to any artists either. I mean, I like Van Halen, but I don't, I don't care about the difference in Van Hagar and, and David Lee Roth. I don't, I don't care. You know, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. Music is so different to me. And anyway, there you go. That's some stuff I was just thinking about this week that I wanted to share with you guys. And um, yeah, there we go. I guess let's, let's go ahead now. <laughs> I hope it's okay. I share some of my regular life stuff with you. I think some of you guys like that. So with that, let's uh, let's go ahead now and get right into our podcast this week. So before we get into all of the stuff we're going to talk about here with Grassy, and there'll probably be much more that I can cover coming up, I want to talk about the strategy in general, and I'm going to break it down. You're going to see in this podcast, I'll break down. I'll say the same thing over and over because repetition is the key to learning. And with that, I want to start with when is the best time to plant grass seed? Not just saying it's the fall because it is. And the reason the best time is the fall is because in the spring, you have a lot of competition from mostly crabgrass. So if you plant your um, grass seed in the spring, it's going to grow right alongside of crabgrass and they're going to compete with each other all the way through the season. And that is because grass seed typically wants to germinate when soil temperatures are between this 55 and 70 degree mark. That's like a great window when grass seed wants to germinate. That's most grass seed. That's crabgrass seeds, as well as your Kentucky bluegrass, turf type tall fescue, or perennial ryegrass seed that you're going to throw down. The soil temperatures being between 55 and 70 are ideal. And so because the springtime crabgrass can come up at the same exact time as your good grass, that's why I recommend against it. There's other reasons too. In the fall, we don't have that. We do have some fall germinating annuals, but they are not as persistent. They are not as prevalent 
And so they're, and they're also easy to wipe out later on down the road, and they don't compete with grass seed quite as badly as crabgrass does. So with that, we say fall is the best time. Now, fall is also a great time because of the temperatures and because of the weather patterns. We're coming out of a hot summer, which is not a great time to grow grass because if you plant too early and the grass comes up and sprouts or you know, sprouts, germinates, whatever starts to grow, you got your little baby grass, and then you get a 90, 95 degree day that goes too hard in the sun, it'll zorch that little baby grass right out and can kill it. So that's why we don't seed in the summer. But we don't want to seed too late either. We don't want to seed too late into the fall, too close to the winter because of the fact that we could get a freeze, an early hard freeze. It'll kill your annual flowers that you had flourishing all year. Bam, they're gone. They're dead. You know, makes all the leaves drop. Well, it'll also kill young grass that hasn't hardened off yet, that hasn't been through at least its second mowing. So that's kind of the, the window that I'm establishing here is it's the end of the summer and then the end of the fall or middle of the fall is like this perfect time. Now, that's different for all of you. If you're in southern Indiana, the end of your summer is going to be a lot later than somebody that is in, uh, let's say, uh, northern Michigan. You're, you see I'm saying? Your seasons are a little bit different, but you have the same grass types or very similar grass types that you grow in cool season. So that's why I developed the soil temperature model because then you can apply that to yourself wherever you live. And the soil temperature model says, again, 70 degrees and 55 degrees soil temperatures. Well, coming out of summer, like right now, your soil temperatures are in the 80s, probably high 70s, but for sure they're, they're somewhere up there. And as we move into September, you're going to start getting a cooling trend in the soil temperatures. Now, I'm not talking about outside air temperatures. I'm talking about soil temperatures. They're going to start to come down. And as they cross 70, now they're going to go from 70 downward, 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 all the way through the fall of September, October, until they finally reach 55 and then when they get below that 54, 53, that's when the window closes. And I would recommend to not seed anymore. And you get to the end of the year. That is the window. Now, where I really recommend the sweet spot for you to, uh, oh, by the way, if you want to know how to get those soil temperatures, you can download my app. Go to the any app store. I think there's only two. Go to the Android or the Apple app store and search Yard Mastery. You'll see my Yard Mastery app, it will actually tell you the exact soil temperature of your house. If you put in your full address, you don't have to. You can put in your zip code. And you'll get the average soil temperature for your zip code by day. Or you can go ahead and you can put in your exact address and we'll give it to you right on your street. And we'll tell you not only your exact soil temperature today and leading up to the time. So right now, if it's 85, it's 85. You'll be able to go in the app every day if you want and see, it, see what your soil temp is. But we will also notify you when you cross that 70 degree mark. You can also go into your calendar and you can see historically when we think you're going to pass the 70 degree mark based on history. So you can get a lot of information on the soil test for free or on the soil temperatures for free right in my app. Now, when is the best time to seed though? Because I talked about that 70 degrees to 55 degrees. You know, if I'm using like a just a general, you're probably going to be falling to 70 sometime in the very first week of September and you're probably going to be falling below 55 sometime um, at the end of October. That's usually like the full window, but I don't want you seeding at the end of the window. I want you seeding up towards the beginning and even maybe a week or 10 days or 12 or 14 days before it, because I want to give you the very best chance. And that's why I want to talk through that strategy now is you're going to seed as soil temperatures hit 70 or as they're about to. That's when you want to do that right in the very beginning of the window. That's your perfect time to seed. Now, can you seed two weeks after that? Most certainly you can. Three weeks, yes. Four weeks, four weeks after that? Well, I don't know. That's where we don't know what the weather this year will do. For example, across a lot of the country, there was no spring. You guys had no spring. 
So anything that you were planning to do in the spring, like spring planting, talk to farmers. They're the ones that plant in the spring, right? Go watch the Millennial Farmers Channel. What a late year they had, right? It delayed things. So I don't know what's going to happen in the fall. Are we going to get an early winter? Well, if we do, this is why I want to hedge against that and have you see that the very beginning of the window, the very opening in the window, and it's even okay to be a week or 10 days ahead of that window. Now, not too much more, because remember, I don't want you to get a 95 degree day too soon, but there is some time that you have in there because when you throw your seed down, it's not like it sprouts right away, right? Or germinates right away. Depending on what you, you threw down, it can take one week, two weeks, three weeks for it all to germinate and then grow. So you have some time there. So being two weeks ahead of the 70 is okay, but not two. You get, you get what I'm saying, right? This is a balance and I want you to trust your gut and I want you to maybe use my app to give you some historical information. Look at your weather patterns outside those are all things that you can do. Preponderance of the evidence. If it feels too early, it probably is. So seed right in the beginning of that window. And here's why. I just kind of touched on it. Let's say that soil temperatures for you, they hit 70 historically in the first week of September. So you're out at the last week of August. Bam, aeration overseed. Perfect. Great job. Love you. Great timing. Bam, everything's down. Your watering schedule's in. You're watering like crazy. You threw a little hydrotain down to help you, which does help a lot, by the way. Put that down and you're going. So one week goes by, you got some perennial ryegrass in there, so you're seeing some germination already, but you've also got some Kentucky bluegrass in there and you haven't seen that move yet. But you just keep watering, you're fine, because remember, Kentucky bluegrass takes up to three weeks to germinate, whereas perennial ryegrass can germinate in three days. So, and that's why they're a great mix together, by the way. So you can see that perennial rye is growing, growing, growing. You probably got some existing lawn there that's also growing, growing, growing. And now three weeks later, now the Kentucky bluegrass is coming in. You've started to mow one or two times. So that ryegrass now has been mowed one or two times, per the, the bluegrass. And we'll talk about mowing for the first time. People ask about that. That's coming up later in the podcast. But the ryegrass that came up in three days has been mowed once or twice. The bluegrass that came up in three weeks is just now getting ready for its first mow. But you can see we're already moving through the window. In fact, by the time all of this has happened, we're probably all the way to the end of September now get the, the, the ryegrass through its first couple of mows, the bluegrass through its mow. We're at the end of September now, and that's fine. We're in good shape. We're probably at the end of September, not in any danger of an early freeze for most of the country. I'm going to keep mowing. Now I'm going to keep fertilizing because what I'm going to do is that new grass that grew, the more I mow it, the more it's going to harden off, the more it's going to pack roots, the more I fertilize it, the more it's going to gain up starches and whatever else things grass save up for winter. And I'm going to push, push, push. And I'm going to have probably all the way until Halloween that I can continue to mow, fertilize, and water. I'll get plenty of water, hopefully, because it's fall. I'll get the water for free. So I can continue to mow and fertilize and biostimulate that bad boy all the way through. So it's got the best chance. It's been raised right. It is a fit and ready young stallion lawn ready to go and, and take on its first winter. <laughs> Whereas if you plant too late, you can see the opposite could happen. If you waited till the middle of October and you had some Kentucky bluegrass in there that takes three weeks to even germinate. Now, it won't even germinate until no November. Boy, you're really, you know, you're really running up on the chance to get a hard freeze. That would be the opposite extreme of that. Now, if you find this podcast, you're like, well, Al, I'm somewhere in the middle. Okay. So if you're in the middle and, and I use the ideal time, you know, we seed at the end of August and I said, hey, you're way too late if you seed it in the middle of October and you say, well, I'm in second, third week of September right now, what can I do? Well, I would tell you, uh, second, third, maybe fourth week of September, still got a seed, then go mostly heavy perennial ryegrass that germinates in three days versus a turf type tall fescue that's gonna germinate in 10 days or a uh, Kentucky bluegrass that's gonna germinate in 21 days. Maybe you go heavier with the rye and with the fescue because they germinate quicker. 
That's one small way to hedge a little bit more of your bets if you happen to come into this podcast or the seating idea a little bit later than you would have liked to. But overall, that's the complete window for you. That's kind of how we look at the strategy overall. And I've got a free guide that if you're on YouTube, I'll link below. Um, or if you just hit me up somewhere on Twitter or wherever, I'll send it to you. But I have a free guide that kind of lays this out for you. And actually I have a an infographic that you can actually print out and you can write on. You can write on your dates and take notes and all kinds of fun stuff. And again, get the app if you want to do it that way. And there's an electronic lawn journal in there as well, where you can take pictures of your progress. You can cut, you know, track everything and keep it moving and even share those and, and all that kind of stuff. So hopefully that was a good kind of preface for you. And you'll understand now how I kind of go about looking at the strategy. So as we go through the rest of this podcast, everything will be crystal clear. All right, y'all, thanks for coming back for another Lawns Across America podcast. This one coming to you late August, heading into September, and it's going to be mostly about seeding. That's because that's what we're doing this time of year. Fall is the best time to seed, and when I say that, I'm talking to my friends with cool season lawns, Kentucky bluegrass, perennial rye, turf-type tall fescue, and the fine fescues. You guys are the ones that are thinking about strategies and approaches for seeding here in the fall. And so in this podcast, I hope to answer a bunch of your questions as well as get you to look at things in ways that you may not have thought of. So what the first thing I want to do is start about who should seed their lawn. So if you're somebody that's brand new coming into this, you just started lawn care, you just bought your house or you just got an interest in lawn care and your lawn is thin and you're thinking about seeding and I'm talking to you. And also those of you that maybe you had a really rough summer. It's been interesting to look at different parts of the country, you know, uh, the weather patterns. When I was in Michigan, beautiful weather, plenty of moisture, uh, but I'm hearing about folks in New Jersey, record dry and heat. So, you know, cool season lawns could be looking a little bit different from here, from there. You might have dead areas. So that's who I'm talking to. If you're somebody that maybe is experienced with your lawn, you've been working on it, but the summer's been brutal on you and you got a lot of thin areas, you're going to also need to seed. So here is what I would say, and here's the general rule for seeding. If your lawn is a minimum 30% turf, 30% grass throughout, if you can look at your lawn, maybe it's full of weeds, full of junk, but at least 30% of it is grass, turf. Get down in there and look at it. If that's the case, then you can do a full aeration and overseeding or a dethatching and overseeding or an overseeding alone. We're going to talk about all the strategies today. But you, at 30% or better turf, I would say you could do great with overseeding and lots of fertilizer pushing. That's what I, that's what I call the 30% rule. So if you're wondering, should I burn the lawn down and start over or maybe resod or reseed? Or should I try to work with what I have? That 30% rule is the one that I talk about. 30% of the turf that's there, you can go ahead and move forward with getting it better using the strategies that I talk about of aeration and overseeding. All right, so I think the first best topic to cover is how to tell the difference and if your lawn can recover from where it is. In other words, it's a terrible lawn, maybe it's super weedy, maybe it's super thin, and you're wondering, should I start over, burn it down, resod, burn it down and reseed, or should I go ahead and try to work with what I have and make it better or rehab it from where it is? And I will tell you that my general preference is to always try to rehab what is there rather than burning down and starting over. And I'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast, but let me focus in on you folks then that are going to decide to go ahead and try to rehab what is there. How do you know that you can set yourself up for the best chance of success? And this is where I come in with what I call the 30% rule. So 
if you're sitting here right now and you look out over your lawn and it's at least 30% turf throughout. So maybe some weeds, maybe some other junk in there, but at least 30% turf throughout. Don't be afraid to get down in there and look and see at least 30% turf, then yes, you have plenty of existing grass there that you can go ahead and push it hard and get it going as, as well as overseed at the same time. And you can get a nice, much, much thicker lawn by Halloween. However, if you're less than 30% turf, that's when other means may need to be taken on. So those are just a couple things to think about. Should I even seed it all or should I even attempt to rehab what I have? Yes, you should if you have at least 30% turf there. Now, let me talk about what the way the strategy works. The reason I like to have some existing turf there is number one, because we can push that with fertilizer in the fall. Spring and fall is when cool season grasses really put on roots and put on top growth. And so fall we're coming into, we can take advantage of the natural um, stimulation that the existing turf will get. And that, that natural stimulation is, oh, we're heading into fall. It's time to thicken up. It's time to put more roots on. It's time to grab more sun as much as we can, because when we get to winter, the days are going to be shorter. There's not going to be as much sunlight and we're going to go dormant. So the grass is saying to itself, I've got to go ahead and get all I can in right now here in the fall. This is my last chance. We have cooler temperatures. Now we have some, we're not, you know, no blazing sun. We're getting some rain. The grass is taking advantage of that. And it knows that it knows knows that that fall season is coming and it's ready to thicken up. So what are you going to do is the first thing you're going to think about is fertilizing that existing grass. It's already there. It's survived. If you do have 30% grass, 35% grass, think about that as being the alpha grass. That's the strongest grass. It didn't die when everything else did, when everything else succumbed to the weed pressure or to the pressure of the sun or the drought or whatever it is, that 35, 40% remaining is the strongest. And so rather than burning that down, we want to push it. And the way we push it is the fertilizer, especially higher nitrogen. Yes, I love some potassium. It's great for overall stress relief, but in the fall time, the stresses are not quite as great. In the fall, what we want to do is maximize that muscle building. I want you to think about your lawn as being in prime condition to bulk up. It is on a bulking cycle naturally. It's releasing hormones. It's releasing its own steroids. Ah, It's good to go, right? Let's push it by feeding it that creatine, that nitrogen. You guys get what I'm saying, right? So that's the first part of the strategy is to thicken the existing grass. Now, you got that going for you. We got nature, we got fertilizer to push nature harder. Now we come in with the overseeding and this grass seed is gonna fill in the rest. The nice thing about having that 30% turf or more is it actually acts as a way to help hold the seed in. Any stuff that's there will help, by the way, Weeds that are there will also help. Um, any other junk that's there. So I don't want you to think uh, that it's only grass. Anything that's there will help you. But when it comes to just not wanting your seed to wash away, having that 30% turf there is good. Now, I'm going to link in the description here a video I did of a lawn last year in Fargo, North Dakota that had some pretty big bare spots in it, but it was well more than 30% turf. But you'll still get an idea of what I'm talking about with this strategy, or you can look at my channel, The Lawn Care Nut. Just search Lawn Care Nut, Fall Lawn Care Before and After. You'll see it from last year, and you'll see what we did to that lawn. So let's talk about what it takes to actually successfully grow grass. You need three things. The first thing you need are the correct temperatures. You need to to make sure that we're not too hot and we're not too cold freezing. 
we need the right temperature, and the right temperature is when soil temperatures are at 70, 70 degrees coming out of summer and falling into fall. That's when you want to seed. That is the ideal time. That are the ideal temperature times. Now, the second thing that you want is you want seed to soil contact. That seed has to be able to root in. If it's sitting up top in the canopy of your lawn and it's not able to root in, then it will eventually just die. The third thing that is needed is the most important really though, and that is water. You got to keep the seed fairly constantly wet daily for several days to get it to germinate. It's water that kind of triggers that dried out seed in the bag. It says to it, hey, there's enough here for you now to go ahead and release your energy and go ahead and germinate. We got plenty of water around you. Oh, also there's seed to soil contact here. Oh, also there's not super blazing hot, hot 95 degree sun. And oh, there's also not a freeze coming. All of these things are ideal to grow that grass. Those are the three things that are needed. And the fall time is when we have that temperatures and, and mild um, mild weather that we need. And so when you put all of this together, nature pushing the lawn automatically, plus fertilizer pushing the lawn more and helping the new grass seed, you know, once it gets going, and then the grass seed on top of that, and the mild temperatures and all the water that you're putting in, you can see how all of this is going to really push the lawn to really get going. Now, let's talk about the other side of that, which would be burning the lawn down and starting over. So there are times when I would say it is going to be needed, and that would be obvious, is when you have less than 30% turf there. If your lawn is all weeds, for example, then yeah, you're going to go ahead and burn things down and start over. Along those same lines, sometimes you might have a problem in the lawn that you just can't overcome by pushing the good grass thicker. I would say if you had like a really bad infestation of creeping bent grass, there's not going to be a way to choke that out by pushing the Kentucky bluegrass harder. It's just not going to work that way. You have to burn down in that case. Another one would be if you had clumping tall fescue all over your lawn. You guys that haven't, you know, it literally makes the lawn unusable. If that was the case, you're not going to be able to choke that out by getting your fescue thicker or anything like that. You're going to have to burn that down. So that'd be another case when I would say it would be fine to do and you're probably forced to do it. Another could be if you're actually changing the sun shade composition of your lawn in a major way. Maybe you moved into a house and it's totally covered in trees and you need to cut a few of those down to go ahead and open things up just a little bit. And in that case, you might have all fine fescue in the front yard. You cut down two big old oak trees because oaks are the natural enemy to the lawn anyway. You cut these big oak trees down, that fine fescue is not going to thrive in sunlight when it's been born and bred underneath all of that shade. So in that case, I would say that this would be an option as well. And then the fourth and final option where I can think about it might be a good idea to burn the lawn down or where you probably would need to is if you did want to change your grass type. Let's say that you're further down in the, in the transition zone and you have Kentucky bluegrass and it's just not performing very well for you in the summer. It's just a little bit too hot where you live. So you want to switch to turf type tall fescue. Well, in that case, then a lawn burn down could also be in order to go ahead and get that clean stand of turf type tall fescue in there. And then along those same lines are kind of similar to that is some of you just want an elite look. There is no doubt, there is no denying the fact that a lawn that is say 100% Kentucky bluegrass looks a lot sharper and prettier and neater when it's trimmed well, as opposed to a lawn that is a mix of grasses like Kentucky bluegrass and rye. So some of you do want that elite look, and I believe if you're going to real mow, then probably I would definitely go for more of the elite look or mow lower. 
But for those of you that are typically out there, normal homeowners just wanting a nice looking lawn, you're going to mow tall because that's just the easiest way to keep the lawn healthy. Then I would say you definitely probably don't need to go that route. Now, there are some inherent risks that come along with burning everything down and reseeding it. And that is that things can wash away if you get a heavy rain. And you know that's going to happen in the fall. You're going to get those gully washers, people call them, and it's going to wash portions of your seed away. Just be ready for that. That is because you burned everything down. Remember earlier I was talking, if you have some good grass there, 30% grass or dead weeds, those can actually serve to help hold your seed in. Now you got to aerate the heck out of it. We'll talk about that coming up here, but long and the short of it is some material there will help. Whereas if you burn everything down and you get it all nice and smooth, it looks so pretty and flat and beautiful, just pure, whatever your dirt is, clay or whatever you have, loam, that looks great but that also makes it really easy for the seed to wash away. So just be ready that that could be a challenge that you have. The next thing to think about then challenge-wise with burning the lawn down is you are now opening up your soil. It's one thing to have a lot of weeds growing in there and some grass because that is providing a covering for that soil. It's The soil needs something. The soil wants a root in it. It doesn't want to be bare because when soil is barren for too long, it dries out and it blows away. It becomes the dust bowl, right? So it wants to have a living root in it and when you kill everything off and open up, who knows what kind of seeds are down in there that are going to grow right back to replenish that immediately. And they're going to be growing those weeds, whatever they are, that probably would have stayed buried down deep. Now they're exposed to more heat, more sunlight, more water because there's nothing there. Everything is flowing through. Who knows what might rise up and grow right next to your seed. And it could be something that couldn't be taken care of later. It could be something that may not be manageable. So it's just a, something to think about. It's a risk you take and there's risk and reward with everything we do. And of course, it's a living thing. It's a lawn. We can always make changes to it, but it's just one of those things to consider if you are thinking about burning your lawn down to start over. Now, there are a category of you who I would recommend that you don't seed your lawn. I know that for some reason, people think they do need to seed their lawn every single year. And in some cases, there are reasons for that. And it's a good idea. But if your lawn is overall thick and and doing well, I don't see a reason to go ahead and reseed that. When I lived in Indiana, you can look at my turf tall turf type tall fescue lawn there on my channel, the Lawn Care Nut. Um, all my old videos, that lawn was seeded on bare ground because uh, it was new construction. And then the second year I seeded again to fill in some thin spots. And after that, I lived there for over 10 years. It was never seeded again. In fact, it was only aerated once when I trained some True Green guys. I used to work for True Green, so we used my lawn for training one year. That's the only time it ever got aerated in those 10 years and you can look and that lawn stayed beautiful and looked great year round. So you don't have to seed all the time. If you're taking care of the lawn properly, you don't even have to aerate. If you're taking care of the lawn, if you're adding carbon to the soil, whether that's your organic fertilizers like malorganite, or these days I use some malorganite and I also use the biostimulants, the humix. I like to use those to add that carbon to the soil. That's really, to me, the key to keeping it aerated and healthy and all of that so that you don't necessarily 
need to seed. The other thing to think about is if your lawn is already sufficiently thick, when you throw the seed out there, it's competition for it. Um, we say that a thick lawn is the best competition for weeds, and that is absolutely true, but a thick lawn will also be the best competition for your brand new germinating grass seed that you just paid, what, three, four, five, ten dollars a pound for, or whatever it is. So you got to think about that too. Throwing seed on that thick lawn, it just doesn't make sense. The way I kind of look at this, we talk about the 30% rule, you know, saying if you should seed or burn down. The way I look at this is maybe you have a couple areas where there's things that are the size of a basketball or smaller bare spots. Those should fill in just from you hammering it with fertilizer. So spot here, spot there, over overall size of a basketball, those will fill in just by hammering the lawn with fertilizer. Even if you have an area where it's a bunch of baseball size um, holes together or bare spots together, those will fill in pretty quickly because we have this natural growth push anyway, those will fill in naturally with fertilizer. And if you're not seeding, then what this allows you to do is go on the defense. Every single year in the spring, I will get people posting pictures of these lime green spots in their lawn, lime green grass just showing up in their lawn in the later spring. And they're like, oh my gosh, is this Poa annua? Now, I try to stay away from that because Poa annua is one of those things where when one person thinks they have it, everybody in the group thinks they have it. It's like a sickness, right? It's like this placebo effect, weird thing. So I, I try not to discuss this too much, but that is one of the things that can come up. If you little, live a little bit further south, you can get weeds like hairy bittercress that'll come in in the north, henbit, which people always think is creeping Charlie, henbit germinates in the fall. So there are actually ways to stop weeds by going on the defense. So if you decide not to seed your lawn, now you can go on the defense and you can keep out more weeds. Now you may not have these weeds, but I'm saying some of you do. So why not go on this defense in the fall and use a pre-emergent? So instead of seeding when soil temps fall to 70, what you do is you put your pre-emergent down and that will stop weeds from going. Now you still are growing now and it won't stop all of them, by the way. You got to read the label. Pre-emergence only stops certain things. Amazingly, Poa annua, henbit, and hairy bittercrest are the main ones I'm talking about here in the fall. It'll also stop some spurge as well, but spurge is pretty prolific. But that's what the fall pre-emergent will do is it'll help to stop a lot of these weeds from even coming into the lawn. Keep in mind, though, you still have the natural growth, the natural put-on of weight, the natural bulking cycle that the lawn will be in. You still get to take advantage of that, so you still want to push your existing lawn with fertilizer to fill in those thin spots, to fill in those basketball-sized holes, while also playing defense at the same time. And actually, I think if you've gotten to that point where your lawn is thick already and you can go to playing defense to stop weeds and more offense with just fertilizer, number one, it's cheaper, number two, it's easier, I think it's fun that way, but that just allows you to really kind of say, sit back and say, wow, I've kind of arrived at a point now where I, I'm, I'm on to the next level. I'm on to the next thing. I'm on to the next challenge. I don't have to deal with seeding anymore. So that's just one of those things to think about is should you even seed at all? And frankly, like I said, in Indiana, I never did. So one question I get pretty often this time of year when it comes to seeding is, do I have to aerate the lawn first? 
So if you remember earlier in the podcast, we talked about the three things that are needed to grow grass seed. And one of those was seed to soil contact. So I would say that that's the main thing to think about when you look at aeration is seed to soil contact. If I throw my grass seed out there as it is, do I have just bare dirt showing? And do I have some grass around that can help hold things in? If you do, if you have 30% grass or more, or you have sporadic turf that you're seeding into, or you actually even have weeds like dead crabgrass or dead weeds around, all of those things can help hold the seed in. So you got to kind of look at those two things. What is the current coverage of the turf? And if it's sparse throughout, that means seed to soil contact should be good. Um, and that means also then that that sparse material will help to hold things in. And so in that case, I would say, no, you do not need to mechanically aerate. That's what I always liked mechanical aeration for, uh, especially in later years as I've learned more and more and we have different tools now to increase roots. I am really more about aeration, mechanical aeration being a seed bed prep tool. Okay. So again, if you have a doubt about that seed to soil contact, then yes, I would recommend you aerate the lawn. Now here's the reality of it though. An aerator is heavy. You got to go rent it. You're not going to put it in the back of your Civic. You're going to have to have a trailer or a truck or at least a larger SUV to get it into, and you're not going to lift it alone. So there's a lot of barriers there. And then once you even get the aerator out, I like operating an aerator. I love it, but it will beat you up. And so there are a lot of people that are just not physically even able to do an aeration. That is the reality of it. So if you're thinking about, man, I'm going after seeding, I want to do it, but I can't aerate, should I still do it? Yes, you can. Just know some of these things about seed to soil contact and such. Now, another question I'll get that's similar to the one around aerating is, should I dethatch my lawn first? So let's go back to that and again, review what is thatch. Thatch is this layer of organic material, mostly dead roots and dead um, grass blades and different things like that, that resides right at the top of the soil. So you have your grass blades up top, you have your soil and your roots down below, and right in between there's a little layer of material. And that's a good thing to have. A little bit of thatch, we say a half inch or a half inch or less, is good because it helps to retain soil moisture. There's all kinds of organisms that live in there that are healthy. Um, it helps to block sunlight so the roots will stay cooler. So there's a lot of reasons to have some thatch there. However, it can get too thick to where to the point where the lawn itself will begin to thin out and it feels spongy. So that's what thatch is. Uh, by the way, too much thatch then means that air, water, and nutrients can't even get through it. They all hang up in the thatch layer. And that is definitely not a good situation. When that happens, roots from the grass will know that they turn upward and they go and start growing in the thatch. And that's how that spongy appearance happens. So that spongy feel happens is all the roots turn up to get where the air, water, and nutrients are, which is all in the thatch layer, not in the soil. And it just becomes this big mass uh, of problem. That's the spongy lawn. So back to seeding, should I dethatch first? Well, let me ask you, if you have a thatch problem, like we talked about, where the thatch is so thick, the roots have built up there, I would say, let's not even talk about seeding right now. Let's talk about fixing that problem. Why did that occur? Is your ear, It's usually from irrigation, and it's usually from folks that have an irrigation system that runs every single day for like 10 minutes per zone. It's shallow watering. That shallow watering creates the buildup of that thatch, which makes the roots move up into it. So I would say that shallow watering is the big thing, and you should correct that first. Now, there might be other reasons for it, but I just want you to understand if you have a thatch problem now and you go ahead and you dethatch and you seed, but you don't change what created it, you're going to have the same problem again next year. So that's the thing you want to think about. Now, let's go back to 
you got that fine. You're like, no, 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 I don't have any problems like that. The thatch is from a previous owner. I've corrected the, the watering, whatever it is. Okay. So then I would say to look at this seed to soil contact, going back to that. If you can look down in the lawn, just get down and look down and all you can see is brown dead material in between your thin lawn like that. Yeah. You're going to need to remove some of that. And this is where now we can look at dethatching as an alternative to aerating because a lot of these cheap dethatchers that people buy, the Sunjo or uh, Ryobi has one now too, a, cord, uh, a battery-powered one. Uh, what's the other one? The Sunjo and the Greenworks. These also come with Scarifier blades that'll actually kind of tine down into the soil a little bit and, and rough up the soil a little bit. Nothing crazy. Don't be expecting like you're tilling a garden, but it's definitely enough to get some things roughed up. And these are easier to handle. These things are easy enough. You can order it on Amazon. It'll come to you. You can pick it up. So it's not like an aerator, right? That it's so heavy, you can't deal with it. Uh, it's not going to do the same thing as an aerator. It's not going to do the same thing at all. But it is going to help you with your seeding if you can't see that soil. Seed to soil context so important. So if you're looking down and you can't see this, the soil, that would tell you, yeah, maybe it's time to go ahead and get one of these cheap little dethatchers, like 120 130 140 bucks. Go ahead and aerate. I can handle it. It's not super expensive and it's going to help me get seed to soil contact. So in that case, I would say, yes, go ahead and dethatch. But if you don't have a thatch problem, if you are, are just able to see soil, again, I say go back to our project lawn that we did in the fall last year in North Dakota and you will see what that lawn looked like. We didn't dethatch it. But again, if you have a thatch problem and you want to dethatch, you want to rough things up a little bit because you feel like that's going to give you better seed to soil contact, then I would say go for it and it's never going to be a bad idea. All right, another question I'm going to be getting in the next few weeks is after my seeding, when can I mow? People have this fear about stepping on those baby grass. They're going to kill it. It's going to hurt it. And, and I'm glad you have that. You want to be tender with it. You don't want to be rough with it. But I can tell you it's going to survive fine. And yes, you can go mow. Now, you shouldn't go out there with, with a thousand pound zero turn. I don't know if they weigh that much, but you shouldn't go out there with a six, seven hundred pound zero turn and do a bunch of donuts on a newly seeded lawn. No, but if you're using a push mower and you're walking behind it, then I would say, yeah, it's okay to mow when you can't stand it anymore. And here's what I mean by that. So you seed it and you put down your starter fertilizer, which is what my strategies recommend. And with that, remember, we're going to not only get the benefit from the new grass seed, we're going to get the benefit from the natural already existing grass that's going to push hard and grow and thicken up alongside of us. And that's what's really going to drive you the most nuts is that existing grass because you're going to hammer it with fertilizer and you're going to seed in that existing grass is already there. It's going to grow really fast, right? And so it's going to be the one that's going to look bad. This, the grass seed below is kind of doing its thing depending on what you have, what kind of grass seed you planted. It's germinating underneath there. We do need to cut because what we don't want is the existing grass to shade out the new grass. So there's kind of this balance there. And what is the balance? Usually it's going to be 10 days. Some of you, it might be eight days. It's how long can you let that lawn go where you can't stand it anymore? Eight days is fine. Nine days, 10 days. That's probably when you can mow for the first time. And 
I would definitely not dance on the lawn. I would definitely get on and get off quick. I would mow as tall as I can. Um, go ahead and mulch. You're going to be fine there. Uh, unless you're leaving giant clumps, then no. But that's what I would say that eight, nine, 10 days, that's when you can start mowing. After that, mow as spor sporadically. Is that the right word? Sparsely. In mow as infrequently, infrequent, deep and infrequent. No, not deep. That's a whole nother thing. <laughs> You want to mow as little as possible for that first two, three weeks, especially if you're planting Kentucky bluegrass that germinates a little bit later. Um, mowing should be sparse, but you can do it. You're not going to hurt anything. You're not going to cause any major damage. If you do see an area that was a big bare spot that's got little baby grass growing in it, well, then don't step on it. Just pay attention. But overall, you're going to be fine. It's okay to cut. Don't worry about it. The grass is tough. It's resilient, and it'll come back if you step on its head, even when it's a baby. All right, y'all, hope you've enjoyed this podcast so far. Been a lot in here, but I'm really excited for this last segment here. I actually have an interview with Max Berry. He is an entrepreneur and co-founder of Allegiance Flag Supply. Um, I've actually been a customer of theirs for over a year now. They actually advertised to me on, I believe it was Facebook first, but I think Instagram too, but for sure I would see their ads all over Facebook. And I've always flown an American flag outside my house as long as I can remember and I never realized that, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but most of the American flags, I think all of the American flags that you can pretty much buy, whether it's at an Ace Hardware or even on Amazon, I think most of those are made somewhere else. They're not made in America, which is kind of ironic, right? And so that is the whole basis behind what inspired Max and his business partners to start Allegiance Flag Supply. And now I fly one of their American-made high-quality flags out front of my house. And we are also now selling them through the Yard Mastery Store. So this is another American business, small business that we are partnering with and working with to help grow together. So with that, I thought I would have on Max and interview him and talk to him and ask him some questions about business and entrepreneurship and some of the things that he's gone through to build his business because I think that would be inspiring to you because a lot of you are also in that small business kind of mindset. So with that, let's get right into my interview with Max Berry of Allegiance Flag Supply. All right. So Max, great to have you here, man. Thank you for uh, taking time. I know that uh, my audience is going to love hearing what you have to say about your story and where you started Allegiance. So I guess let's just go right there. Tell me uh, a little bit about yourself and uh, your entrepreneurial journey and how you started with uh, Allegiance Flag Supply. Alan, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, so I am a co-founder of Allegiance Flag Supply. It's a company that I started along with two of my partners, Wes and Katie Lyon, actually a married couple. Um, and Allegiance was born a little over three years ago in our garage uh, when we actually, all three of us kind of bought houses at the same time. And one of the first things that we did after we bought our house was try to find an American flag to fly off our front porches. So pretty simple. Um, I ended up buying my flag, I think from Amazon, uh, and Wes and Katie bought their flag, I believe from like a big box hardware store, like a Home Depot. And we were shocked when we saw that both of our flags were made in China. And to us, it was 
kind of crazy just because you would think of all the products that exist, if there's one product that deserves to be made in the USA, it's the American flag. So that kind of shocked us a little bit. And then we ended up doing a little bit more research and found that uh, there's still so many American flags that are made overseas, mainly in China. Um, and then if, if the American flags are made here domestically, a lot of them are just kind of spit out of a machine um, and maybe don't have that craftsmanship or attention to detail that we were looking for when we bought a, our flags. So um, we quickly realized, hey, I, I don't know what honestly, I, I don't know what we were thinking. I think we were a little crazy and a little ignorant, and we we're just thinking, hey, let's just start our own business and try to make American flags. Meanwhile, none of us had any experience in sewing or textiles yeah. <laughs> or anything. But I, I feel like that's kind of the story that you hear sometimes with entrepreneurs is like, if we knew what we know now, maybe we wouldn't have just kind of dove in, but <laughs> <Gone after>. um, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're very happy that we did, but we certainly learned a lot along the way. Um, and that was three years ago and I'm, I'm happy to get into to more of it uh, if you, if you're interested, but um, we kind of just started from Wes and Katie's garage and uh, we, the first thing that we did was we, we found a, uh, a great old textile manufacturing company. Um, it was like a run by third generation seamstresses. I mean, these are people that, you know, their parents taught them how to sew and their grandparents had taught their parents how to sew. And it's really sewing in general is kind of a dying art, unfortunately, because it's right. these, these seamstresses are really artisans and um, yeah. what they can do is, is very difficult and uh, very impressive. Uh, so we started there and we quickly like figured out, all right, let's let's use the highest quality materials. Let's use uh, more hand stitching rather than having it spit out of a machine and um, let's use all materials that are sourced in America. That was really important to us. So let's make sure our thread is, is coming from the USA. Let's make sure the fabric's coming from the USA. So we did all that. It took us months. I mean, it took us over a year to really do the R and D to figure out how to make the best American flag. And then what we did was we got a website and, and, you know, we, again, being ignorant, said, all right, as soon as we turn this website on, the orders are going to flow in. People will find you. Yeah. <laughs> we turned the website on after doing all this R&D and um, crickets. No orders for a long time. You know, it took weeks to get our first order. And then, you know, after getting our first order, we didn't start getting consistent orders for a long, long time. I'd, I'd really say when we started to take off and when we were finally able to move out of the garage into a, a larger kind of facility was when COVID hit back in March of 2020. So it's kind of been a long journey uh, from the start until COVID. And then uh, we've kind of taken off like wildfire since COVID. And since then we've sold hundreds of thousands of flags and we've been able to move facilities. And um, what's really important to us, and I know we'll get into it is being able to hire these American jobs and specifically American textile manufacturing, which I'm sure your audience knows 
got shipped overseas really in the late 20th century. Um, my grandfather was in textile manufacturing and just, uh, I know firsthand so many of those jobs just dried up and got outsourced to China and, and other uh, countries in Asia. And it's kind of been a, a, a lost kind of dying industry since then. And for us to be able to bring those jobs back to hire seamstresses and, and all that uh, here, especially in the South, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been such a joy for us. And uh, it's, it's really great to, to have these jobs come back here to America. I think that it's was really long. Sorry, <laughs> long response. No, I, I'm. I've got a bunch of questions. So you, so you guys, when you're starting out, you have a great idea. You definitely can see there's a need. I because I can see that the minute you tell me that there's American flag, it's hard to find an American made American flag. I can already see. Okay, that's that's a hole that you want to fill. I get that totally. Right. So you, you contact, you find a local, local or a a, a U.S. based textile manufacturer, and so do you just go in there and go, hey, this is who we are help us out and and are they like your original like source of information to help you to understand the business because you had to learn this business right how did that yeah exactly because you've grown it very quickly you know yeah we we had full-time jobs at the time i mean this was like something we were doing on the side we definitely weren't quitting our jobs to go start an american flag company because we had no <laughs> idea if there was going to be any product market fit so uh you know we've we found this factory in Georgia, which is just a couple hours from where we are in, in Charleston. Um, and yeah, we had, we're just using our own money. We didn't have any money or investors or anything like that. Um, so, so you just contract with them with so many feet of whatever it, it is and they, and then you just have to yeah. come up with money and they'll make it for you. They'll do a run. I mean, well, you know, I, I think when you start out and you try to get manufacturers it takes a little selling on your part for them to buy in. I mean, it's make like sure you're legit. 20, yeah. 20 flags. So it's like for them, it's like 20 flags is really nothing. But for us, it was all the money we had and all we could afford. So, mm. um, yeah, we worked with them. We we're like, hey, you know, what we're trying to do is take the American flag, which obviously is standard. I mean, you're not going to change the design of the American flag or anything like that. We're just trying to make it maybe a little nicer and add a little bit more hand craftsmanship to it, make it last longer um, and make it out of materials that are sourced in America. So, Hey, let's change. Uh, you know, what are our options for thread? I mean, thread is something that we all know, like if we've had an American flag in the past, that's, you know, the, the stripes have ripped apart or something. I mean, the right. thread needs to be able to last out in the elements. It, it needs to be able to uh, take a beating from the sun and the elements and the rain and the wind. Um, so, hey, what are our options on thread? What are our options on fabric? Um, you know, in the past, I think a lot of these American flag companies have looked at the flag as a commodity. And when you look at it as a commodity, you're going to do the most cost effective, you know, things, whether it's how you sew the flag in, in the labor part or it's what materials are in the flag. So we didn't want to go that route. It's not going to be. Uh, when it's a commodity, it's a race to the bottom for pricing. And we are not that, you know, we are not a cheap flag. We are by far the most expensive flag on the market, but there's a reason for that. Um, so we worked with the factory. We came up with something that is, is really a superior uh, product, superior quality. It takes, it takes a lot longer for us to sew our flags than it does the other guys. I mean, it's, it's a lot of, hand movement, hand sewing. 
Uh, so yeah, we kind of figured that out and we had to kind of convince the factory to work with us because we just three people that didn't have a th- bunch of money or anything to invest. So, mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of how it started. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it worked here we are, but yeah, there's now they all probably want to work with you, right? See, now it's the other way yeah. around. Now you, you've proved exactly. proof of concept. Now they're probably, and so I just, the reason I wanted to bring that, cause we have similar, uh, used to be, no one would talk to me. I would go to, to, have, to, to work on fertilizer blends and no one would talk to me. Now it's, it's changed. So it's just interesting to see that. So you persevered through that. And I, and I, in the way that I know you guys is I was already a customer before we ever met. Uh, and I, two things, I like the American made. I could tell the quality when I got it, it looks nicer, longer. It doesn't get all mildewed or the color doesn't fade or change like you're saying. But the other thing I like is you have the spinners. I, I don't know what you call them, but the other problem I would have is my flag would get all wrapped up and weird. You have these whatever that is. I don't know if you invented that or not, but basically the flag doesn't get tangled. What do you call those spinner things or whatever they are? We call them spinners. And what they are is they're uh, bearings that rotate around that are covered by anodized aluminum. Uh, so they're built for the elements. And, you know, you might've seen these before, like, but way more cheaply made, made out of plastic, probably made in China. Um, and like, they spin for maybe a month and then they get stuck or something like that. We made the Rolls Royce, I guess you could call, or for an American term, we made the Cadillac of uh, these spinners. So what it does is it prevents your flag from being tangled and wrapping around your pole. So when we started this business, we, we started to pay attention to other American flags and how they're hung on homes. And like, I, mm-hmm. I guess, for our whole lives, since we didn't have an American flag business, we never really paid attention to that until we did. So now, whenever I drive in any kind of neighborhood or any kind of street, I always notice there's like, there's got to be 75% of the people that fly American flags. It's just the flag that's wrapped around the pole. And I'm sure every day or whatever, they have to go unravel it, unwrap it, and then just for the same thing to happen again. So that those spinners really alleviate the need to do that. And they allow the flag to just fly by itself without it looking wrapped around the pole yeah and i i mean i have a larger flag on mine i ordered a a four by six so it's a little big but i love it because it just hangs out there and just blows huge so but uh yeah so yeah i've seen the quality um i want to go back to because you you you're are you full-time now in this or you still have a day job oh yeah we were uh we were able to quit our jobs right uh during when COVID started back in March of 2020, all three of us quit our other jobs and went on Allegiance full-time and we haven't looked back since. And how many employees are you up to now? We've got about 30 employees now. Um, and we still work with co- like a few contractors, but our goal is to be able to do hundred percent of our own uh, production, sewing all that by the end of the year. And we're well on our way. Wow. So Okay. Uh, we're, we're so proud of that. Um, and yeah, it's just <laughs> another thing that we were probably ignorant on <laughs> when we first started is just hiring in general, as we know, has been tough in the last year or two, but hiring seamstresses and people that know how to sew is very, very difficult. Just finding them. I mean, these, these people are unicorns. I like to say they're <laughs> it's, it's an art form that unfortunately I guess maybe the younger people aren't as interested in, and we're trying to find some ways to get that interest back up. 
I learned um, in high school. I was going to ask you, you're younger than me. I learned in high school home ec class. We actually sewed on sewing machines. We made wind socks. Uh, I actually won awards because I was very good at it. <laughs> I, so I remember learning how to sew and you had your foot pedal. And it was cool. Like I kind of enjoyed it. It was a neat process and everything. So, so, so part of what you're doing is you're trying to revitalize this art form, which I think is a really cool kind of sidebar of what you're doing, you know? Exactly. And it's like, there's just so much pride in it and sewing is it's tough. I mean, it sounds like you were good at it. I'm terrible at it. <laughs> um, I, I, I've tried, believe me, but like, it's, it's great bringing these, you know, textile manufacturing jobs in the first place back is awesome. But to watch these seamstresses, so American flags, I think right. adds a whole nother layer to it because like all bets and rocks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone's got their own American story, you know. There's some people that work for us that are first generation Americans, and the American flag to them mm. obviously is special. Obviously, means something to them as like they weren't born in this country, and now they're they're uh, citizens of, of the country, which is incredible. And they've had to go through a lot um, to become citizens. And then there's other people that are multi generation Americans that. Um, our, our lead seamstress, she is an air force veteran. So not only is she a, an amazing seamstress, she served our country and sacrificed a lot. And to sew the American flag means so much to her. Um, every single flag that comes out, I mean, she, when, when she talks about it, I mean, a tear comes in her eye cause she's so passionate about it. And, um, I think that's just what's so cool for us is, you know, it's one thing to maybe sew curtains or sew any other kind of textile, but to sew the American flag, I mean, there's not many other things that you could make that have as much emotion attached to it and passion. So that's what we've been so excited about to kind of offboard some of our initial third party manufacturers and like bring it all under the Allegiance umbrella. It's just been really special not knowing how difficult it would be to find people that can sew very well because it does take extreme talent and skill but also to have them firsthand sewing american flags and just see kind of the different emotions that it brings out of people is has been pretty special yeah and then you also uh you're you're big on on working with veterans you mentioned your lead seamstress there but also you're hiring um active duty spouses and things also uh, so you can talk a little bit more about those initiatives that you guys have? Yeah, so right now, um, hiring veterans is very important, like you said, and then also hiring military spouses is important to us. And what we found out with military spouses is um, because they have to move around frequently and they don't really know when they're going to have to move next or how long they're going to be at their current location. Unfortunately, it's led to a lot of job insecurity for these military spouses. And on top of that, military spouses are very qualified for a lot of different roles. Um, and, and I believe I was looking at a stat um, that the, the Labor Department put out. I think like something like there's 75% more likely to be unemployed even though they're overqualified for jobs than um, just regular citizens, which is super unfortunate. So what we found is 
uh, our customer service team um, is built fully of military spouses right now. And we'd like to continue that trend because uh, military spouses, as I said, they, they're very qualified. They're very competent. Um, and they have a great story to tell. And with our customer service jobs, they can work remotely. So it doesn't really matter where they live. Um, they can take work with them. Um, doesn't matter to us and it doesn't really matter to our customers, but when our customers call us, they love to talk to a military spouse that works for Allegiance. They love to hear what their story is, where their spouse works and kind of um, everything in between, because obviously our customers are very patriotic. Sure. So yeah. um, it's always been an interesting story to tell. So that's been something that we kind of didn't know coming into it and have quickly learned and have really held on to, Hey, like how can we hire more veterans? How can we hire more military spouses? And because these people, I mean, we're not doing it uh, just because it's charitable. I mean, these people have a lot to bring to the table. So it's kind of a win-win for both parties. And, and we've been excited about that. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I mean, it just your your whole brand is making sense the way you've shaped it. So and and I, I found with our small business, too, is people want to connect with the people behind the business. That's why they like small businesses. Right. That's why I like partnering with you, too, because we're both building small businesses and our customers are very similar. And of course, obviously I've always had a flag out front of my house as long as I can remember. Um, just one of those things, you just fly the flag out front off the porch. And so yeah. it goes along with everything that we're doing. I have to ask, this is interesting. And I, I think you told me this, but I can't remember. What is your background? What did you, when you went to college and stuff, like what was your goal versus where you've ended up now? I mean, my background has nothing to do <laughs> with, with flags, which is funny. I mean, I have a hotel finance background. So when I went to college, I majored in uh, hotel management. So I've worked at hotels for 12 plus years. Um, and I always knew I wanted to have my own business because my goal at the end of the day was to be my own boss, to work for myself. And I always had kind of side businesses going on as I had my full-time job, but nothing, never anything that I could quit my full-time job and do um, instead. And Allegiance, like I said earlier, I mean, when we started, it took a year for us to start to get like multiple orders in a week. So Allegiance certainly wasn't that thing that just like took off at first. It, it was kind of a struggle, but because we don't have any investors, like this is our business. It's me, Wes and Katie. Uh, we own a hundred percent of the business. We've always been profitable since day one. So like we weren't, we weren't running out of money. We had 20 flags in inventory and you know, if people were going to buy it, great. We'd make some money on each sale. And if they weren't, then we weren't going to go bankrupt. So there was no reason to stop doing allegiance, like for that first year when we weren't getting any bites, but I'm glad we continued with it. Um, and you know, I think it just took some time. It's for, for me, I mean, I was always, I would always listen to business podcasts, like uh, how I built this. We were really big fans of that. But unfortunately, whenever we would listen, all of the founders of those businesses would always say, yeah, you know, and it just immediately took off and we were just getting so many sales and we couldn't keep up. And we were like, are we doing something wrong? I mean, we feel like we have a really good idea, but no one's buying our, our flag. So what's going on? So it just took some time to figure out the messaging and, um, you know, just kind of figuring out a couple of different things along the way and making some pivots. And then that's what allowed us to, to take off. And, um, 
we're, we're happy that we, we kept at it, even though we weren't getting any sales. Yeah, no, I love hearing it. And you're right. You didn't, well, you weren't foolish and you didn't, uh, you didn't overextend. And, uh, you know, that's, I mean, that's what it is. You had a belief in, in what you were doing and you knew you had a good product and you knew that people wanted it. You just had to get in front of them. And like, I remember, I mean, it's been, I mean, I must've been a pretty early on customer because I remember seeing Facebook ads and buying the flag. So, you know, it worked. Yeah. And so here we are now, you're working with an influencer. (laughs) Fun that way. But uh, it it just, you know, again, it makes sense. And I know our audience is going to love hearing your story um, because, again, they've seen similar stories. And I think a lot of people in our audience have similar dreams, you know. And um, over the years, I had a lot of different things I always wanted to try. And most of them never worked or I didn't have the money to get them started. So a lot of it's luck too. I think you would agree with me that you're right place at the right time. You have the right business partners that just happen to be your neighbors. I mean, exactly. that's fortunate too, you know, so we all kind of have those stories. So at 30 employees, you're gonna, you're creating manufacturing on your own. What's, what's your next, what are your next steps at? I mean, where's your five, 10 year goal? What are you guys looking to accomplish? I think for us, um, we know that our foundation is, let's make things in America using American materials with American workers. So um, I think the next few years, you'll see us continue to expand our product line, whether that's uh, more flags or other products that uh, a Patriot would want to buy, whether it could be clothes, it could be keychains, it could be any chairs, beach chairs, folding chairs. Exactly. Yeah. Everything has to be made in America and has to be sourced in America. Um, so I think, I think our customers have spoken and like, that's what's important to them. Um, let's pay people a living wage. We pay at the top of the market. Let's offer um, health insurance and benefits and all that good stuff. I mean, let's, I think people, what we've proven, I guess, um, is you don't have to be the cheapest product. Again, like we are by far the most expensive American flag. But if if you can make a quality product and if you can tell a story that people can get behind made in America, American workers, then people people aren't always looking to buy the cheapest product. People would much prefer something be quality and um, be proud to buy something that's made by their fellow countrymen. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of what we proved. And I think we saw that a lot when when COVID hit in March of 2020. We quickly realized, hey, like remember when we were running out of all the PPE, like the gloves and the masks, and we were like, well, why are we running out of it? Because none of it's made in this country, so we don't have access to it. So I think people really realized maybe everything shouldn't be outsourced. Maybe we should make things again, you know, like we did in this country. Um, And that's kind of what we're focused on is making things of very high quality um, with people that are made that are uh, in America. And I think uh, people can get behind that. And I'm hoping your audience would agree. I'm assuming they would, but that's kind of what our goal is. Let's keep making things here and let's, let's make them well. hundred percent. I mean, that's, again, that's why I I buy from you. I I figured out the quality once it got to me, but it was originally the American made story. And I mean, we all get behind that. We all love it. And you're right in today's society, People will pay, they'll pay for quality. I mean, 
Yeti cooler proved <laughs> we used to make fun of a $350 cooler, but now it's the, you got to have that white Yeti on your boat or you're just not the man. And by the way, I'm wondering, I mean, you probably sell a lot of boat flags, don't you? I mean, I'm in Florida. I got to assume the yeah. boat flag market has also gone up um, <laughs> uh, off the charts with, with COVID and that. I want to ask just one more thing. This is, this just triggered that when you talked about the the supply chain issues because i remember when that was going on we sold rubber gloves for ppe and we couldn't get them because they were all being used for other things um uh, and ours you know they did they came from overseas so are you saying that when when that happened when COVID hit your business took off are you saying that your supply chain stayed solid and you were still able to crank out your flags you didn't get pushed to the side for somebody to make gloves or masks you were able to keep going because you're for the, the most part it, made guy. It, 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 yeah, it stayed pretty solid because everything we were doing was domestic. So like none of our suppliers are waiting on the containers from China that like their, you know, ports were shut down, our ports were shut down. They weren't waiting on that because everything was being made domestically. For for the most part, it stayed pretty solid for us. I mean, that's not to say that we haven't been hit hard by inflation now. Sure. Um or recently from suppliers, but yeah, that's definitely a added benefit to manufacturing and sourcing everything in America is you don't have to like wait for these huge container ships to get from Asia to, uh, you know, California. And then we're in Charleston, South Carolina on the opposite side of the country. And then wait for that container to be loaded on the truck, wait for that truck to have a chassis that was missing and then like drive that truck from, California to Charleston. I mean, we didn't have to deal with any of that. So that, that was absolutely an added, added benefit of, of sourcing everything here. That's I'm glad we brought that out. Cause that's interesting to think about that. I'm wondering, you know, I'm just American made is something that's easy to easy to talk about and hard to do, but I think it's, you're doing it. I wonder if it's an interesting play for other business owners to say, I'm going to go American made because no one else is. And so I'll be the only one. So you get the whole benefit of being American made, but also like you just said, you have access to all the supply line that no one else does. So, yeah, exactly. Here's the flip side of that, to that, Alan. Um, we, every year that we've existed, we've sold out of flags in our peak season. Um, peak season obviously is probably similar to yours, um, you know, spring, summer, mm -hmm. because we, we don't have the option to just flip a switch and scale production of flags because Unlike a company, let's say you're a company that makes iPhone cases and you get them in China, right? Let's say that you take off and instead of selling a thousand iPhone cases, you need to sell a hundred thousand iPhone cases. Well, you could just call up your Chinese factory and say, hey, I need a hundred thousand this month and um, they could do it. They could scale it easily. Yeah, it's easy for them. We make hand-sewn American flags. So there is no factory that can make our flags. There is no machine that we could add to make our flags to scale for us. We need to find more employees and more seamstresses um, and buy more sewing machines, of course, but um, it's not simple. So we've sold out every single year because it's not easy to find people, unfortunately, that can, can sew, frankly. Um, so that's kind of been a, our struggle that, we probably have by manufacturing in the USA that, you know, the 95% of other businesses in this country that do outsource probably don't have that struggle as much because they could just call the factory and the factory could print more or make more, you know, shoot out more versus us. We, 
we're, we're so locked into like the hands-on process that it's, uh, it's definitely a, a hurdle for us, but it's something that we're getting better at and, and uh, hopefully going to be able to get over here as we continue to have more people. Now we're at 30 employees. A year ago, we had, I think, 10 employees. So we've, wow. we've certainly grown quickly. And with that, we're able to scale more now because we're building out this infrastructure that just doesn't really exist. So that's that's been a learning curve for us. Kind of train your own people. I mean, that's, so this is really the the challenge we hear with all trades. This is a trade. So it's electricians, it's plumbers, it's seamstresses. Like these are trades that it's almost like you're having to be responsible to train the next generation of these tradesmen and tradeswomen that know how to sew. Uh, that's cool. That's an interesting responsibility, but it's also really cool. Um, it, I mean, I don't know, you're going to partner with trade schools. Is that kind of the, or high schools? I mean, I yeah, don't know. so we, we've, um, we've had that in mind. Like we have a technical college here in Charleston that we've reached out about partnering with just to do, whether it's an apprenticeship program. Um, the problem has been though, like these jobs have been so low paying that I don't think it was worth anyone's while to do it before. Um, but we're willing to pay a lot more than the market. Um, and again, that goes back to like pricing and being able to pay people living wages and have the margins to be able to afford to do that. I mean, we're a business at the end of the day, so mm -hmm. um, it needs to make financial sense for everybody. But um, yeah, I'd love to be able to find a program that works with whatever, if it's a high school, if it's a trade school, anything to kind of get people back on this American made manufacturing um, just just program. So that's something that we're going to continue to try to build out as we grow. Yeah. It's important to, people to, to want to do it and for it to make sense for them to do it. Yeah. And I would think, like you say, building something like that in your community. I mean, that's what the community's built up around trades and around manufacturing. And I think it's time for that to be restored. And definitely it's a big responsibility. And I wanted to say that I think small businesses, I think it's up to us to, to turn that tide. I think uh, some of the yeah. larger businesses may uh, be too too big. Their ship may be too big to turn around in a lot of cases. And oh yeah, I would imagine if you were a huge business and trying to like move everything from an overseas factory to America would be, I uh, just an un just unimaginable just kind of task. So for us to have started here and like organically grown right. from nothing to something, it's been certainly easier for us. But yeah, I mean at the end of the day. The only reason why these jobs were outsourced in the first place was labor costs. It's just simply the people overseas are getting paid a lot less than the people domestically. And that was the factor that it's not like the overseas people are more talented or better sewers or anything like that. If anything, Americans have proven to be um, the top quality producers in the world at many different industries, but like, it's just been, labor costs. So that's been it. So if we can figure out a way to make it make sense uh, for and, and pay our employees enough, which we do, um, but it maybe because we're at the top of the market in terms of pricing and other companies are just kind of racing to the bottom, it, they wouldn't be able to do it. So maybe to change kind of that mindset would, would be a win-win for everybody. Yeah. I mean, that's the idea, right? They can't, they've gone so far to the bottom, they can't match where you are now. So Again, that's small business. Let's take advantage of, of a hole that was created by manufacturing going offshore. Okay, the hole's there. Let's fill it. Small businesses, come on in. <laughs> I love that. Exactly. Concept. 
exactly. And the other thing too, with um, just being able to be like the, a more premium price and not be the least expensive American flag um, is the ability to give back. And that's something I just wanted to mention briefly too. It's not only is it very important to us to give back to um, the military community and the veteran community, um, but it's extremely important to our customers. I mean, you can imagine anybody that buys an American flag absolutely wants to be able to give back to those kind of communities. So that's something that we're really proud of. We've donated um, a lot of flat, thousands and thousands of flags and a lot of money, just cash as well, because they always appreciate that <laughs> to a lot of military nonprofits like uh, Stop Soldier Suicide, Folds of Honor, and many others. And um, you can see on our website all the different nonprofits that we work with, but it's something that we're really passionate about um, as well as our customers so that that's really worked well for all of us yeah and again i just this is that small business spirit right just let's just keep funneling things through like a conduit it's jobs it's giving it's giving back it's philanthropy it's yeah it's it's great being an entrepreneur in this country let me just tell you because we have such an opportunity and i love hearing the opportunities that you're filling and i'm i'm glad to partner with you max i really am i think like i said our audiences are the same our goals are the same and uh, I look forward to seeing uh, what we do in the future together. Is there anything else you want to say? I mean, people can get uh, a small smattering of their flags currently on Yard Mastery. We got like some of the best selling stuff. But Max, if somebody wants to look at your full line, you want to tell them uh, where you where they can find you guys at? Yeah, definitely check out uh, what we offer on Yard Mastery. You could also uh, visit our website and uh, and check out all the other options. Our website is Show Allegiance. Dot com. Um, and then if uh, you wanted to learn more about our story or our nonprofit partners, uh, that's all available on our website as well. But I mean, yeah, I just for us, our biggest thing is, look, we're a small business. We're not the big fish in the ocean. We're just a small company that's run by a, a husband and a wife and then their friend who's <laughs> who's me. Um, and, you know, our whole goal is to make things here in America, make them with really high quality and hire other like-minded Americans and hire veterans where we can and hire military spouses where we can and then also give back to the military community where we can as well. And it's as simple as that. It's, you know, everything else is, is just kind of like more complicated, but it's for us, that's, that's what our whole kind of foundation is based on and it's worked well for us and we're going to continue to try to grow as much as we can and hire more people and and we'll see where it takes us awesome can't wait to see what you guys do thanks for your time today max alan thank you very much i appreciate it